Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. As we begin a new journey to our next century episode mark, this is episode 101. And we are super excited to be speaking with Zach Dykwald, founder and CEO of Young China Group, a think tank and consultancy with a focus on the emerging influence of China's millennial generation on the marketplace, workplace, and international politics. This discussion with Zach was so good that we decided to turn it into two episodes. Naturally, we focus most of our discussion on China's youth, starting with how today's millennials differ in the East than in the West, the downstream effects of the one-child policy on today's market, and the state of mental health among China's youth and what employers of millennials in China can expect. Enjoy. But as you're thinking about consumption, it's it's not really about where are you from, like which province in China. It's also not about which city tier are you from. Very important, but not the ultimate deciding factor. It's it's more about when are you from, which generation are you from, which mentality towards money and consumption do you have? Because this young generation is the first generation of sort of intuitive consumers in China. The older generation grew up sort of like our Great Depression generation. They grew up in a with a subsistence mentality. Some are hoarders. Some are willing, unwilling to spend on on the basics because they they feel that a, a calamity could could strike, which it did so often when they were younger. This younger generation does grow, has grown up with a lot more security, and so there's willingness to spend. There's willingness to go into debt, which there never was before, to to live the life that they want today. Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Todd. Okay, quick introduction of yourself, if you will, how you became interested in China, working in China, became a bit of an expert on China. Sure. So I, I've been in China for most of the last decade. I first went when I was 20 and I went primarily as a science fiction fan, as, as goofy as that sounds. So I'm from, I'm from Berkeley, California. I was at Columbia in New York. And when I was deciding where to study abroad, you know, they kind of lined up the pamphlets in the study abroad office and noticed pretty quickly that the, the European pamphlets kind of looked like a history book, uh, looked like I would be going to study the past. And once I started to look at the pamphlets for Asia, they started to look like the, um, the science fiction books I love to read. And I had never been to Asia. I had very little exposure to it. I had taken a modern Chinese literature course with a phenomenal professor, Lydia Liu, over at Columbia, who I didn't realize at the time was a legend. And that, but that was kind of it. You know, I wanted to see uh, where everyone was saying the future was unfolding. And so I went, um, traveled extensively. I was in Hong Kong at the University of Hong Kong, traveled extensively throughout mainland. And realized pretty quickly that the China that gets described to us still, and this was back in 2010, but today, versus the China that I was seeing and experiencing on the ground, there was a pretty vast chasm between the two. And I went back to New York, uh, finished my senior year, and 
and it felt boring. And the most exciting question to me was, okay, how do we, how do we bridge that chasm? How, how does China become more knowable? And so I moved back after graduating without a job. I didn't know anybody. My only real goal was to try to get deep into the place, into the culture, into the language. And the next four years, I, I spent doing that, mostly on the outskirts of second and third tier cities. I spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on trains across the country. Um, I was doing translation work. I was consulting and, um, and primarily researching for my book, which came out in 2018. It's called Young China how the restless generation will change their country and the world. And that's sort of how my guess is I landed on this podcast. I've been lucky enough <laughs> with the Young China Group to be able to do some work with Harvard Business Review and, and put out research that advances, um, I think something that you'll identify with Todd, which is we, we believe that we believe in a, a people first perspective on China for a better world. Exactly. And I think the business community knows that better, frankly, than a lot of other communities that are that are focusing on China these days. Yeah, a hundred percent. So much of that over the last two years of recording podcasts, um, you know, recording the negotiation podcast has boiled down to that, and it's really hard to be able to understand the people because it's a vast country. Um, and there's a lot of dialects and there's a lot of different cultural beliefs. There's just the superstitions that range across, uh, the country are, you'd be completely different and almost opposing (laughs) in different areas of the, of the world. So getting to know the people, it's, it's really, really important. And so this is what's really kind of fascinating about the work that you've done. And, and specifically, I'm, I'm so intrigued by what we're going to talk about today because there was a period of time where China was, I I wouldn't say static, but it wasn't changing as fast. And then all of a sudden, you know, we hit the 90s and then things really start to ramp up. And so, you know, and I love what you said, even when I think about traveling, if you go to Europe, you get to visit the past. If you go to Asia, you get to visit the future, right? And the future is the young and, and, and what's happening with the young. So let me start with this question or maybe this ask, introduce China's millennials, okay? Like, and, and not in the Simon Sinek way. What are they like as consumers, workers, family members, citizens, this type of stuff? Because they come from a culture, and we're going to get into this later, but how do they differ from the counterparts that we know are millennials, are young to be like in the U.S. and, and broader Western world? It's a big question. So let, let's start with a big answer. Let's start with scale. Just, just to sort of, uh, this is a little bit of the size of the prize for the business community. I don't want the conversation to end there, but it's important to understand this. Um, there's an obsession with millennials in the United States in particular, uh, but definitely Western Europe as well, which is great. You know, what do we stand for? What do we want to watch? Are we going to vote? Et cetera, et cetera. There's about 80 million of us. And by the way, most of the wealth is still aggregated at the top of our uh, of our family tree, right? Most of the boomers are the ones who are actually the primary consumers in the United States. We often talk about from the consumption point of view in the United States, it might be millennials and Gen Z who are making trends, but it's still boomers who are moving markets. And again, 80 million millennials in the United States. In China, you have 420, give or take, million millennials. So five times what we have in the United States, there's actually more millennials in China than, than there are people in the United States and Canada combined. So 
large. When you're thinking from a consumption point of view, the most fundamental difference, and I wrote about this a little bit with, in Harvard Business Review that I see. Um, in, that, in that article, we broke out four major areas of inquiry. One of them was generational power, this idea of how much, how much consumer clout uh, each generation has. And that has to do with size. Uh, we talked about generational continuity, which is what do we inherit from our parents? And when you think about the boomers in the United States versus the boomers in China, I mean, one was growing up in, in sort of make love, not war era. My dad was deciding whether or not to go to Woodstock in, in 1969. In China, that was the middle of the Cultural Revolution. And you have to remember that those are the people that raised, they were the parents and grandparents of, of today's millennial generation in China. So that generational element, super important. I would say this issue of intergenerational financial flow. What the, what the heck does that mean? Basically, one of the most defining elements, and I hinted at this before, of the U.S. family tree is that the money kind of stops at the top. So we'll put our kids through college if we can, but we are not enabling them to purchase dramatically. We have this idea, and, and it's one of the questions I get asked about the most in China, which is once the kids leave the nest, you really kick them out for good. Obviously, there is some help that's given to, you know, across generations in the U.S., but by and large, there's this idea of being able to make it out on your own. In China, you have a young consumer who, by most metrics, has about a fifth of the purchasing power of the average young consumer in the United States when you think about what they themselves are earning. But what's so different and why so much of the consumption in China is done by the under 40 crowd compared with the rest of the world is that they have a intergenerationally enabled purchasing habit. What does that mean? Well, if you imagine China's demographic pyramid stay, which looks a little bit like an inverted pyramid, you have the 421, some say crisis, some say mostly crisis, less opportunity. You have four grandparents for two parents for one child. That works like a downward funnel. It's a downward funnel for dreams. It's a downward funnel for aspirations. It's, it's a downward funnel for love and attention, for food. It's also a financial downward funnel. And so you have these young people who are buying iPhones, who are able to buy property, who are able to influence the economy in a way that far outpaces what they're actually earning because of the intergenerational financial flows within a Chinese and really East Asian family. So from a financial point of view uh, and from a consumer point of view, what makes Chinese young consumers different? Like, absolutely, we should talk about the amount of change that they lived through. But when you're just talking about consumers, their, their financial enablement, empowerment through that multi-generational downward funnel makes them globally unique and certainly unique from, from Western consumers. The one-child policy, um, maybe just quickly touch on how that has influenced or greased the funnel of, of the funds because we're looking at a six-to-one downward you know, focus of two sets of grandparents, one set of parents, one child. I mean, absolutely. It went, by the way, when we were, this is going to come into focus right now because the one child policy was relaxed into the two child policy was relaxed into the three child policy and young people, you know, you're talking about millennial parents, not just parents. Young people don't want to have a second kid. And when we're interviewing them, why? I mean, they're obviously reflecting on their childhood as well. And what we get consistently as an answer is that, look, a, a second child would make both half as competitive. I think one of the underappreciated elements of 
sort of China's project of childhood is how pressure driven it is, how competitive it is. So when you're imagining that downward funnel six to one, yes, it absolutely empowers these young consumers. Yes, it absolutely means disproportionate spend on education, but it also means enormous pressure and competition, competition in the middle school market, the high school market, the college market, the job market, the marriage market. It's relentless. And often when we think about China, we think about these these sort of organizations competing internationally. The real competition with China is nationally, is internally. And um, and you can't really undervalue the, the role that a pressure-driven youth has played in, in the upbringing of, of my peer generation in China. Would it be fair to say, because I think I've said this once or twice on the podcast before, and I haven't run into somebody as knowledgeable on, on China's youth as you are, so I'm actually maybe looking to you to see to corroborate, am I right, am I wrong, when I say that in the West, we're a bit of a pay it forward when it comes to, you know, say the money flows, uh, where in, in China, there's an expectation of a pay it back with regards to we've invested in you for a long time so that you can then take care of us later. That's the base. So, so you're right in that is where China is coming from. I would say you're wrong in terms of where China is going. So what you're talking about is China's retirement system, which traditionally is their kids. It's called family <laughs> more sure. It means the, the, the return yeah. and feed model. The return and feed model means exactly what you said, which is like, we'll raise the baby birds until they're ready to leave the nest. They'll leave the nest. And then uh, when they come back, like we expect them to come back and look after us into old age. That was easy when as recently as 1950, China had five between five and six kids per family and the average life expectancy was 40. And so when you had five or six kids, really three of those, because it was something that fell on the sons, able to look after parents and grandparents as they went into retirement, um, that was pretty easy when, the, when these grandparents or these parents weren't like retiring and taking a cruise, they'd be dead. And it, and it sounds tough, but you have to know that that's how Chinese society was able to sustain itself. And so the idea of being a good person is often mixed in with the idea of being a good son or daughter. Self, mm -hmm. right? This idea of filial piety. Filial piety mm -hmm. is a terrible translation. So I'd never be like, yo, Todd, I'm going to go home and be filially pious to my dad, <laughs> right? Like that's not, mm -hmm. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that conversationally. <laughs> but in China, it's a concept that, that really drives a lot of the moral system. You know, China doesn't have a history of religion, at least not the way that we do in the West, but they do have family. And so it's yes. why when every year at Chinese New Year, I don't know if you've ever taken a train during Chinese New Year. I've done it one too many times. You'll mm -hmm. see all of the young people going home to their families, going home to see the elders and their families. And the number one gift you'll see them with under arm is not, uh, people usually assume it's like fancy baijiu. That's part of it. Or cartons of cigarettes. It depends on where they're going. But more than anything, it's boxes of vitamins as a sort of symbolic gesture of saying, hey, look, we're, we care for you. We'll look after you. And so when you think about the pressures of this young generation, you're right in that traditionally it's this idea of being able to pay it back. But this young generation is, has the demographic legs cut out from under them. So morally, they have this tremendous want to be able to look after their parents. But because of the shifting demography from the evolving sort of lifestyle in China, you know, 
urbanization has has driven up the cost of life dramatically. It's what's turned China into a cult a consumer of, excuse me, a culture of consumption. But it also means you have this young generation who has this tremendous desire to look after their parents, coupled with a complete economic inability to do so. Again, pressure. I am now I've I feel like you and I could actually talk about this for a very, very long time. So it's gonna be on me to try to give you the rest of your day back in some shape or form because I have, I mean, I, I lived there for eight years and I worked with a lot of young people. You know, in 2012, trying to invest in a startup when they were keeping the entire fact that they were doing a startup and not working at a big company hidden from their parents was a very difficult landscape. I had more than a few conversations and phone calls with parents to let their children be entrepreneurs um, so that I could actually invest in the company that they were building. And I've lost more than a few of those investments due to the parents' pressure for them to drop what they were doing as a startup mm-hmm. and go take that job at the bank that their father got them so that he could actually you know, be out in public once again. Not to mention the multiple staff that I've I've come into the office and found crying on their desks because they received the weekly call from mom and dad saying that they're 28 year old, they're they're female, they're they don't have a boyfriend, and they're just shaming their family to to the grave. Um, right. And so I've seen the gamut, I've experienced, and I have a lot of thoughts about it. Not that anybody cares what I think because we have you here. So <laughs> you're, you're you're picking up on something, Todd. I- Todd, I want to give you a visual here that I think I think is so like your employees, your co your coworkers, your colleagues, your co-founders, whoever it was. You have to remember that this I, I call this young generation the restless generation for a reason, and it's because they are in charge of defining China's modern identity. Mm-hmm. The older generations were so, I mean, I think we forget how brutally poor older generations were in China. So if you are alive today and above the age of 60, you have survived a famine that killed tens of millions of people with the Great Leap Forward, um, mm-hmm. or 70, excuse me, bad math. But so this is a generation that grew up with lack. The, the transition they were making was that of subsistence to what their kids have now, which is, which is something above that. They call China the world's middle class today. But the identity part is not as straightforward as just earn more. And so I, I often think of this young generation as caught between two tectonic plates. Mm-hmm. On one side, you have tradition. You have sort of this sort of neo-Confucianism, family, very important. You know, women should get married. Men should also get married and raise a family and, and be selfish and, and filially pious. And, and that's what it means to be good. So those are the pressures on one side. And on the other side, this other tectonic plate, you have the pressures of modernity, urbanization, Education. It's not enough for young women just to, you know, get married at 18. They all they now have to go to college and get master's degrees and join big companies. And then, but you're exactly right. By the time they're 27, if they're not married, they're called shengnu, a leftover woman. And and so you have these two tectonic plates that don't really align. Pressures of tradition with the needs of modernity, and they're grinding on one another. It's this young generation who's going to figure out how the two fit together what a modern Chinese identity looks like. And Shengnu, like this, this issue of, um, of leftover women, I think is, is a really good example of this. Because exactly right, like it used to be in China, women were 
were meant to get married. That was, and, and do it relatively young. And if you were hit 27 and you weren't married, you'd be called a leftover woman. Um, Lita Hong Fincher has done really incredible work digging up sort of the roots of this. I encourage everyone to check out her book on the topic. But when you have these young women now are also being told that you have to go through this, this incredible gamut of education. Um, and you have to go get a master's degree just to get a good job. And then you have to have a couple of years of good job to be considered eligible to, to find a good man. And so you're like 25, 26 with this good job and great education. And then you have one year to figure out dating, love and marriage before you're labeled a leftover woman. And, and so these tectonic planes don't always align perfectly. And it's this young generation who in some places they're going to push back like this in, in large cities throughout China. This idea of a leftover woman has been not fully rejected, but definitely opposed in a more voluble way than probably anyone expected five years ago. It's an area where those tectonic plates weren't fitting seamlessly. And so I, I think about that friction. I think about that tension because as optimistic as we like to paint the Chinese young consumer and what incredible purchasing power they have and they're changing the global economy, that's all true. But that's not to say this young generation is without real identity formation anxiety that we, we all need to be aware of. China is not a country that you would think is at the forefront of understanding and dealing with mental health. I have drastically felt that mental health in young people in China was not in a great place. And you mentioned the tectonic plates. And I think that was a big, big part of it in in this, this leap forward. When China opened up, you had the parents who survived the, the Mao Zedong eras and, you know, fighting against the, the denial of trophyism back in the early days and then coming out and then trying to be successful. And, you know, they went through extremely difficult times, ergo where the pressure to have something secure because security just really ratcheted up the, the ladder of importance for the parents of, of young people. And they have the traditional family dynamic that we've already discussed, yet now they're They've been opened and exposed to the West and they're watching shows like Friends, not just to learn English, but they're seeing how young people live in New York and run their own lives and do what they want. And and they have all this freedom to do things. And I felt that some of them were taking those steps forward and being potentially admonished for it. I felt that there was a bit of a of a of a mental health trap that they were somewhat falling into um, at a much higher rate than other places around the world. So, I, you know, putting that all together into the formation of an actual question here, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on the state of mental health in China's youth? Yeah. And I and for all the global employers here, I think this is a real opportunity for you. So th this one is important in a work context, but but also in just a, a general context. We are, we are on the tail end of a couple of suicides in large companies in China that have gotten a lot of attention. And there's been real pushback there, as there should be. And you're right, Todd, that, that in order, and I keep coming back to this, but in order to understand the children, you have to understand the parents. You know, my dad was a psychologist. He moved to Berkeley from Jersey. Like, and so, so when I was young and, and feeling anxiety, he had the vocabulary to talk with me about it and not necessarily understand it, but he, he sort of gets while there, why there's a sort of mental health transition in the United States 
um, transitioning towards just deeper awareness and, and, and understanding of it, even though you still get that kind of conservative pushback around, you know, why don't these kids just toughen up? So if you have Americans who grew up in the 60s and 70s wondering why their kids don't just toughen up, think about the generation that built China's manufacturing economy and think about the way that they would understand or not the issues around overwork, around these identity anxieties, pressure around marriage, pressures around jobs, the cost of real estate in China. I mean, this is the, the parents and grandparents of the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation of China were known as the eat bitter generation. Eat bitter means working extraordinarily long hours for long periods of time. And I'm not talking like work hard for a semester and we'll take you to Disneyland, not that kind of delayed gratification like we have in the US, like working hard for five years, 10 years, decades, so that the next generation could have a better life. It's the stories that we hear in the 80s and 90s of, of early factory China, of people begging for extra hours at the end of the week and the end of the month, because it was the first time in post-communist China that they could work harder and longer and earn more. And that opportunity just lighting them up. And so when you ask those parents to be understanding of the pressures of modernity, there's more generational distance that they have to bridge. I often say that in most of the world, uh, we have generation gaps. You know, this whole, the music is too damn loud thing. Uh, if you look at like a picture of Woodstock versus a picture of Coachella, the, the experiences ultimately were not that different between the generations, even though it was 40 years apart. But if you think about the generational chasms, what I call generational gulfs between China's boomers and their kids, there is so much more distance that they have to span. And so that's all to say that this young generation is feeling a couple things right now. First, they're feeling this incredible pressure to get ahead. Second, they're subjected to enormous competition through the Chinese education and job market. And third, they are entering a job market that does not have enough white collar jobs to support the increasingly educated population of young people. And so you get companies like Pinduoduo, Alibaba, JD, whatever, who feel like their employees are disposable and treat them that way. Seven-day work weeks, six-day work weeks, you get, a, you get a one-day weekend twice a month. It's why you're starting to see more suicides in these large organizations. And it's a shame. It's a shame that that's where it is. Um, and, and when I talk with sort of global organizations who are looking to hire in China, and you must, because I mean, the idea that Todd, you or I could do a job as well as some of these young, educated people in China that are in a, in a Chinese market facing role is ridiculous. And anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. And I, I'm, I'm willing to pound the table on that one. But this quality of life question, this attention to mental health, a willingness of global companies, even though there, there are struggles for, for young, Chinese, uh, young Chinese people looking to work in global organizations, the ability to have a better work-life balance, the, the dignity that sometimes comes with these more mature organizations who, who has uh, more respect for, for the personal space, personal time, and mental well-being of their young people, to me, is a real hiring advantage. Um, especially now when, when you're looking for top tier talent in China. What can employers expect from a recent grad? Because I know that from my experience in China, the way that children were raised because of this 
overzealous attempt to give them the best opportunity to get into the best schools, to get the best grades, to get the best jobs resulted in really removing any distractions or interference while they were young. Ergo, kids didn't grow up having a list of chores to do like we maybe had in the West of mowing the lawn, taking out the garbage. I think a lot of decision was removed. A lot of responsibility was removed so that they could just focus on studying with some other free time um, baked in to, to kind of recharge. But then when they graduate, it's it's not like they had a lot of jobs delivering newspapers, mowing lawns, babysitting growing up either. So they haven't even really had much of an experience in 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 kind of any kind of business world. So what are employers maybe expecting the good and the bad when they get and hire millennials when they go to China? It's a great and large question. And it touches on a few pressure points, if you will. Um, one of them being this question of, can this young generation think out of the box? Are they creative? Another one being, is this generation hardworking? And, and so let's kind of go down the line. So I just wrote a pretty long piece in HBR on this question of China's innovation advantage. And it's, I, I think most of my ideas are bad. This is my one good idea for, for 2020. So if you have some time, check it out. Um, <laughs> on, on the innovation topic, there's broad recognition that the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s of China were defined by an industrial revolution, right? China missed a global industrial revolution. And so they had to industrialize. And the way they did that was inviting the world's best industrialists in, providing cheap labor. And, and again, this is the, the boomers and Gen X of the country who are, who are doing this labor. They're the ones who built this industrial China and absorbing, taking, uh, borrowing, uh, however you want to call it, an industrial revolution that, that the world's best industrialists were willing to teach them in their own factories in China. So that's, that's the story of China's modernizing. They did it in 20 years by doing an apprentice, a working paid internship, if you will, with the world's best industrialists on their, on their factories in their, on their home, home turf. These next 20 years about, are about China's innovation revolution. So industrial revolution, innovation revolution. The problem is different than an, an industrial revolution. You can't just invite the world's best innovators into China. Many won't go. So this question of an innovation revolution is centered around Chinese education and Chinese upbringing. Chinese education notoriously does not create innovators. And, and there's pretty broad consensus about that within China. There's actually large awareness of this um, within the Chinese government. If you read the legislation there, I mean, much of China's legislation is organized around trying to stimulate innovative thought amongst its young people, at least as it pertains to education. And I'll give you an example. So we... Our perception of China outside is that you have a government who is obsessed with the mental diet of its population, right? So you have censorship, obviously, and, and our version of what Chinese censorship is is often overstated um, in so much as there's lots of that that young people can access, but of course, there's, there's much that they can't. So you have a government who's, who's really interested in the way they tell their story to their own population. Why is it that one in three of all study abroad students in the United States come from China. One in three. Encouraged by legislation. I mean, obviously, the Chinese government could just hit the off switch on that if they wanted. And the reason is, is that there's recognition that the education system within China isn't going to adapt and transition in time. And so whereas they imported this industrial revolution, they're outsourcing their innovation revolution to a certain extent. Because now 
most of these study abroad kids are going home. And so this is a roundabout way of, of what can you expect from young people uh, when you hire them. Obviously, it's a mixed bag. You can expect increasingly innovative thinkers. You can, uh, you can expect people who have come up through an extraordinarily um, competitive education system, but who have very few opportunities for exactly what you touched on, which is opportunities for failure, opportunities for experimentation, opportunities for much else besides study through their, their, edu- you know, their education lives. So if you know anything about colleges or universities in China, you know that the only thing that matters is the test score. So when I was young and I was on the swim team or the water polo team, you know, I grew up in California. Um, my friends in China were studying. Why? Wasted time. Um, if you were the captain of the debate squad, that's really great. What was your test score? Waste of time if it wasn't helping that. And so you have young people who are not encouraged to practice interpersonal skills, who are not focused on becoming well-rounded because well-rounded would not get you into the school of your dreams or your parents' dreams, which means that you would have a trouble, trouble advancing. And so, again, this is maybe an unsatisfactory answer, but you have a, a population who is by definition liminal, who is by definition the, the transition generation as the country as the working population, as these young people are are increasingly realizing that a different style of thinking is going to be their ticket to a better life, going to be their ticket to getting off the wage cycle. So when you talk about like hiring in China, I think one of the most underappreciated elements is how poorly paid so many young people are, again, because the feeling that they're disposable by large organizations. And so they wonder why there's lack of loyalty. It's because they're paid poorly. And so these young people feel like they, you know, it, it's not ultimately going to make a dent in the in the expenses of their lives, particularly real estate. And you also have a generation who 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 wants to change their lives. And I think this is something that is the same in China, in the United States, in Western Europe, in South America. The ability to advance, the ability to to provide a, a better life to their kids, the the opportunity to make a difference. I mean, these are these are words that we're so used to in hiring culture in the United States. But when we think about expanding to China, we still have this sort of industrial mindset when we go there, which is that there's a team, they're going to help with our localization, they're going to execute global strategy versus how can we help these young people um, feel like they can make a real impact within our organization, empower them to make that impact, which is great for our business. And also will give them a sense of belonging, um, the ability to contribute, the ability to make a difference, and an ability to make a difference in their lives and their family lives. It's so fundamental, but we somehow overlook it when we think of China, because we often reduce it to like a statute or, or sort of this localization effort that we, that we look at from 10,000 feet. I want to talk about Chinese young as consumers. Yes, you may not have made money when you were young, but you also don't carry any debt into being any kind of friction with regards to how fast your future can grow and your income can grow, your potential Mm -hmm. earning can grow. Because when you're done, if you're not married, you go home, you go live at home. I, I have known billionaire young Chinese who own malls and movie theaters and dozens of houses who live at home because this is the culture. He was single. Mm -hmm. He had bodyguards that he drove with and he lived at home. Let's talk a little bit about how that impacts disposable income to be able to spend before we talk about them as consumers. 
again, we're getting back to this question of intergenerationality, which, which I think is so important. And, and, you know, we love to talk about these different generations and silos and like, thank you, boomer. And sort of, yeah, we have these kind of generational grudge matches, but so much of even in the United States, but certainly China um, of the, of the identity of young people is informed by their relationship with their parents and grandparents. So you have to understand all of it in the way that it interconnects. So on this issue, I mean, one of the questions that I get most consistently um, in focus groups in China, and, and most of what we do, by the way, is not in Shanghai and Beijing. We really focus on sort of the rest of China, the second tier and below China, which again is a massive swath, but it, it, we really try to steer clear of, of first tier cities. Um, when we're doing our research. And um, and this is true for my book, and this is true with Young China Group as well. Um, so there's, I mentioned before, this eat bitter mentality of the older generations and the feeling that they were, work, they were delaying gratification so that the next generation can have a better life. So from that perspective, there is a complete lack of understanding of how parents, other places in the world, could let their children go to school and accumulate debt and could graduate with anchors and shackles attached to their feet. Um, because in China, the biggest investment that most families will make is in their children. And, and not all of this is magnanimous, by the way. You know, we, we talked before about how the traditional retirement system in China is their kids. So sort of this mentality is, is hard baked into that, this return and feed model that these young children will, will later go back and support um, their parents. And even though that's broken down a little bit as demography is, has shifted dramatically in China, but this, this sense of investing in the next generation of sacrificing now so that their kids could have a better shot, be it going to college debt-free, be it buying an apartment someplace like Beijing where there's better, you know, where there's better, uh, elementary schools and all the way up through high schools, which means they'll have a better chance of getting into some of China's more elite universities as, as they draw more heavily from Beijing than, than some of the provinces. This willingness to invest in their kids um, is far different than, than that of at least the United States. So, so a bit of an admission here, Todd, I grew up in like a demography-oriented household. My, my dad um, and my mom are both uh, experts in the field of aging and specifically baby boomers. So gerontology, but also focusing on the baby boomer generation specifically. And, and one of the more defining character, characteristics of them is that they're, they're America's largest consumer base. And you think a little bit as to why. From a Chinese perspective, it's because they aren't investing and they're young as much. And by the way, I know this is going to chafe on boomers around the United States, but there is this sense that that it's the it's the job of the parents to give to give their kids the best opportunity possible, which is heavily linked to finance. By the way, the American attitude would be, well, that's cutting the legs out from under them. That's never teaching them the ability to manage their own money. That's that's you're going to sort of quash their competitive embers that that will only be driven by the need to get ahead. And, and there's some of that, by the way, that's being integrated into Chinese education. And there's real questions about how much are you enabling sort of bad behavior by, by sort of wealthy young kids versus empowering them to, to have an even better career. And there's real questions about that. But you're exactly right in, in that this, this consumer revolution um, that we see in China, and when we talk about consumption in China, you're talking about young people, period. An example of this, uh, 
79% of all of luxury consumption in China is done by those 40 and below. Luxury consumption. And McKinsey has that, has, has China representing two-thirds of all global luxury growth between now and 2025. So the largest growth, you know, it's the largest growth market in luxury, and 79% of that of that consumption is done by young people. Two-thirds of all passport holders in China are under the age of 40. Two-thirds. And China is the largest outbound tourism spender in the world. Obviously, there's a double-edged sword of that when something like COVID comes around. But as you're thinking about consumption, it's it's not really about where are you from, like which province in China. It's even less about, or it's not less about, but it's also not about which city tier are you from. Very important, but not the ultimate deciding factor. It's it's more about when are you from, which generation are you from, which mentality towards money and consumption do you have? Because this young generation is the first generation of sort of intuitive consumers in China. The older generation grew up sort of like our Great Depression generation. They grew up in a with a subsistence mentality. Um, some are hoarders. Some are willing, unwilling to spend on on the basics because they they feel that a, a calamity could could strike, which it did so often when they were younger. Um, this younger generation does grow, has grown up with a lot more security. And so there's willingness to spend, there's willingness to go into debt, which there never was before, um, to, to live the life that they want today. So yeah, this intergenerational element, I know, you know, I call it the young China group, but I end up talking about old China just, just as much, at least generationally speaking, because it's so important to understanding mentality of young people today. And then the whole, um, I guess, intergenerational consumer ecosystem in China. You can't understand young people without knowing their parents. Zach, we're going to put a bow on the first part, first half of our two-part series with you. Really appreciate your time coming in today. For those listening, you're going to want to punch into the second half of this. We're going to be talking about how different these trends are in first and second tier cities versus third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier cities. Recommendations for brands looking to succeed in China among the millennial and Gen Z demographics. Uh, talking about you know major events that have impacted mindset and habits of the millennials. We also want to talk about your article and where you talk about the four orbits of inquiry, definitely talking about your book, Young China, how the restless generation will change their country and the world and a lot of other things in the second half. So anyway, to put a to put a bow on this first half, Zach, thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.